welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, the Photo Geekery podcast, where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamareshka, joined always by a guest host this week on May 14th of 2020. Uh, we've got some great stories, especially in a slow news week to dig into, and uh, I had to bring back uh, one of my best buddies on this episode, partly because we just recorded a, uh, an image critique podcast, and it's really convenient to put these things back to back, but also because his opinions on some of the technical and geeky stories rival my own. So Steve Brazel, thank you for being here on this episode. How are you, my friend? It's it's uh, like it's been like five minutes since I've seen you. <laughs> I know, <laughs> uh, and I I am well uh, as well as can be, right? I mean, I I, I worry about uh, our society and what the new normal is going to be, and all the stuff everybody's worrying about right now. Of course, that's that's here too. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm enjoying some gardening. I'm enjoying my family. Uh, some of that is forced enjoyment, which I, I don't mean that to sound bad. Uh, normally my daughter would be at daycare during the day, which would be productivity time for me. But instead, uh, we are all at home and I am having so much fun and so little productivity. Um, I feel guilty about that balance, but I shouldn't feel guilty about that because this is very memorable times for us. Yeah. Don't feel guilty. This too shall pass. You will be working like mad again in no time at all. Enjoy the family time. And for me, my wife has started cooking because we're home. And I mean, like seriously cooking and is making, you know, jerk chicken. And she made a, a enchilada casserole and it is wonderful. What is, the what is the spice in like that Jamaican or Caribbean jerk that is so unique? There's What's when I was in Jamaica, I asked them and they told me and I don't remember, but my wife was telling me it has something to do with a bonnet pepper. I think it was bonnet pepper, something like that. The Scotch bonnet pepper is one of the hot peppers. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's up there uh, with uh, habaneros and so on. And that's where the heat comes from. But there's a uniqueness to the flavor that yep. is not from a pepper. There's some other no, spice No, it's a spice that only comes from Jamaica was my understanding. I can't remember what it was. Uh, anyhow, uh, my mind goes into these little crevices of society. Rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but my wife has also been cooking like crazy. Not just uh, well, she, we bought some uh, jerk spice recently as well. But she made uh, yesterday a uh, a lentil flatbread, um, and uh, put in some fresh garlic and chives from the garden, and some black olives, and then we topped that with salsa. It was just the most delicious, unusual thing. Uh, and yeah, I guess that's the world we live in now. Yeah, and I'm fine I agree. with that. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we can talk more about uh, the antics that we are both up to maybe mid-show, but I do want to get into the stories because we have some interesting ones today. Uh, science and technology march forward, and this helps us in many different ways, uh, especially when manufacturing might be slowed down, but people behind their desks theorizing and coming up with experiments and pushing the technological envelope, that's still going forward. And so uh, our lead story today, I don't know how much we can actually opine on this, but it's right up our alley. Uh, reported from Petapixel, the new world's fastest camera. Uh, Steve, if you wanted a fast camera, would 180 frames per second be enough for you? Oh, yeah, that would be more than enough. Uh, well, for me, you know, you could push 240, might not be happy. 550, I'm making up random numbers now, 1,000. Then you're getting into the category of- uh, You're no uh, longer suffering, yeah. Well, I mean, but th that's like you have a phantom. 
uh, brand of uh, camera manufacturer that uh, that makes really high speed cameras that might go up to a half or a million frames per second. And of course, that's in fairly low resolution. And uh, uh, there is a lot of limitations to how that works to get all the way up to a million frames per second, which is a far cry from a billion, a far cry from a trillion. And now this world's fastest camera can shoot 70 trillion frames per second. Um, Now, there's a lot to unpack here. We've discussed this on a previous episode. Uh, The previous camera that was in the trillion frames per second range. Um, And uh, which was called a which was called teacup. Yes, the the teacup. T-hyphen uh, cup, we should say. Yes, and now we the, this new one is called the CUSP, the Compressed Ultrafast Spectral Photography Camera. And uh, there's a link in the show notes to the Petapixel article that displays right at the front the diagram of how this thing is constructed, where the light source is, where the light goes, what happens. What do you think of all this? Let's just start by saying... It's a diagram that includes a beam splitter. So right there, you know something very serious is happening. 70 hey, well, trillion. No, no, Steve. I, I have a beam splitter sitting on my desk. So Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. 70 trillion frames per second. That's seven times as many as the teacup does the cusp have. But it's the same team. So it's from Caltech. And in fact, and they include the original camera <clears throat> through a splitter mechanism here as well, uh, possibly to compare results or for additional information because the technology is slightly different. Well, and they use the the one trillion version. They use that to, to capture neuron pulses and shockwaves, which is interesting in and of itself. But here's kind of the way my mind simplified this as I read the article. Imagine a laser that admit that it emits a beam one quad quadrillionth second pulse, right? So each pulse is one quadrillionth of a second. That pulse passes through optics. That's where the photography side of this comes in that breaks it up into smaller segments, which is 1.5 picoseconds. And each shorter pulse is then interpolated into an actual image. So this was the number that stuck out to me because you were talking about how many frames per second. This does 230 frames in the time that it takes light itself to move one millimeter. Yeah, that's, uh, and to that point, um, it's great that we can do that now, uh, but why? Uh, Well, I have reasons. Well, and I do too. And and so uh, let's not dive into exactly how it's done because there's uh, white papers and like maybe a PhD thesis in that that's sort of beyond what we can get into in this podcast for everybody's enjoyment. Um, but to, to go back, it's a, an uh, 800 nanometer femtosecond laser, uh, and that's in the infrared spectrum. So you have to take that into account that it's not visible light that they're playing with. This whole thing is happening invisibly. But it was also interesting that it is uh, a, uh, a multi-spectrum uh, camera at the end of it. So during part of the process that I'm not quite sure I understand is you're turning that red light into multiple spectrums, which must mean it's not just 800 nanometers, that there's some deviation around right. that, um, that could be separated from that. Lasers are usually pretty specific. Um, but there's always some variance within that. They're, they're not, uh, narrowed into exactly to the, uh, the barrier of, of that nanometer. 
So that's uh, where their peak is. So they're, they're, there's that, and they're playing with this infrared spectrum, and then they're splitting it at the very end and creating an image um, that is ridiculously fast, n- not in the sense of a regular photograph. Um, this is not going to be like capturing a speeding bullet, making it look like it's standing still. This is more gathering information at that speed of light passing through, in this case, um, a, uh, a a Caltech logo that is uh, sort of cut out of a, a small, because this is Caltech, uh, a, a small little plate. And then that passes through imaging optics, and then it's captured by all of this magic. So why then, Steve, do you think we need this? Well, first of all, it's worth going to the article on Petapixel for no other reason than to watch that comparison between teacup and cusp, because you you not only see the speed difference, but you also see the color difference that you're getting based on the wavelength. And that to me was kind of an integral part of this, but I started thinking about the ways you could use this. They mention in the article, capturing nuclear fission, movement of light waves, fluorescent decay of modules. But then I thought, what about the effect of sound waves at a level, right? Not the sound waves themselves, but seeing movement from sound waves, even when there's very minute movements, cell growth or mutation. To me, there's a lot of ways that you could bring this into the science world to better understand things we we may know exist, but we can see them differently. I'm not sure if we'll have the type of resolution or information required for like cell mutations and, and all of that. And that would happen at a much less fast pace unless you're analyzing proteins. Well, if they're, if they're measuring neuron pulses and shock waves. Oh, yeah, but those happen much faster than mitosis. Um, okay. So, but uh, my, my, my point is, that uh, some of the things about fluorescence could have biological impacts. A lot of the work that I do uh, is directly related to fluorescing biology. And, uh, or, I mean, minerals too, although I don't know exactly how um, that uh, would, you know, be important. But if you could figure out um, exactly how and why specific biological materials will fluoresce at specific frequencies of light and uh, and analyze that very deeply, you, you'll understand some of the fundamentals as to how uh, molecules are linked together, how the atoms are are, are connected and interacting and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, for example, uh, fluorescence, just as a, uh, a, a, you know, an overview, is when uh, one wavelength of light, usually a higher energy wavelength like ultraviolet, but it can happen at lower wavelengths as well. Uh, When that hits an atom, uh, it energizes that atom and the electrons will grow uh, to a a wider orbit. Now this happens so fast and they hold onto that energy for so little time. Uh, And that just decays right back down to the original orbit. It releases that energy, but it releases it at a lower wavelength of light. So I do a lot of work in ultraviolet fluorescence, which I use ultraviolet lights. It fluoresces into the visible spectrum, but you can use um, uh, uh, notch filters and bandpass filters that will say you put your light source to be uh, green light, but then you have a notch filter on your camera that only allows, or that the notch would be on the green. The other one would be uh, only allowing through just a band of red light to see what light uh, fluoresced from green to red. 
And, and so there, there's all sorts of science that's involved in that in order to detect that light. But in order to measure the time scales of this stuff happening, we've just been, as far as I know, making assumptions. And we haven't been able to physically measure that yet because it happens so quickly. Um, and that puts practicality to physical theories, right? When you have the physics of the natural universe, uh, you know, quantum mechanics and so on and so forth, a lot of that is all theoretical because none of it can be observed. Right. Uh, but now I think we are approaching, I mean, with photons anyhow, uh, the ability to observe some of these fundamentals and importantly confirm certain things that we thought were true, but maybe deny things that we thought were true and prove those to be falsehoods when we are starting to develop this kind of technology and allowing us to come up with new theories that properly represent them. Yeah. And, and uh, hats off to the people at Caltech because cool stuff with really, I think not for end users, but in the science community, some very practical uses. And all the people that are saying no dual card slots in the comments, just go away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, let's go from fast to fast, shall we? Um, so also another Petapixel article, uh, testing an insanely fast 100 millimeter F 0.73 lens in real life. Now, um, you're going to listen to us talk, but you should very, very much go and watch this video. It's 50 minutes long, but I think we all have a little bit more spare time right now than we have before. And it is incredibly well done by an organization called Media Division. And while they do discuss one lens in particular, they also give an overarching example of extremely fast lenses that have been made or theoretically, you know, uh, uh, hypothesized that could right. be made, but are just so impractical that they wouldn't uh, wouldn't exist, how they can be used, which is more technically complex than I would have thought. Uh, and why it unless you're trying to do something silly, you probably don't need any of that. So no, and there's <laughs> if you're a gear nut, there's there's a moment in this video that might make you uncomfortable. And he warns you ahead of time. He says, before we do this, you may want to just turn away or walk away for a little bit because they take the sensor out of the camera. And it is one of the most expensive cinema cameras on the market. Uh, and they the mount it with basically stage tape. Uh, gaffer's tape. Yeah. yeah. I use gaffer's tape for a lot of stuff. I've never used it in <laughs> or directly on a camera. Uh, but uh, I have used it on lenses. Uh, I will say that. But uh, so... Okay, watch the video. I mean, pause this podcast right now. Go to the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Watch this video. And, and I'll say, okay. I, my, my impression was when I got there and I went, Don sent me a 50-minute video? What? Okay, I'll, I'll jump around. I watched the video. I couldn't not watch the video. First of all, I will warn you, the people at Media Division, when they walk in a room, I can... Almost bet they're the smartest person in the room unless Don's in the room. It is a <laughs> very that. technical video, but here's what they do. They cover, okay, so we've heard about sub F1 lenses, right? They cover the difference because every, you know everybody's going to want to know, oh, you're talking about, you know, 0.73 lenses. Well, why not just shoot today at high ISO? They cover high ISO versus using a standard speed booster, versus buying actual fast lenses, which by the way, again, we talked about this on a previous episode. 
lenses that are this fast are $10,000 easy. There's a few examples they give that are 500 or 1,000 even, but generally they're nutty expensive. Some practical that they test, some not. But the video footage they did, handheld, by the way, <clears throat> was fascinating to watch. When, first of all, they had trouble getting it in focus because you're shooting, you know, 0.73. But when he would turn his head and just the eye closest to the camera would snap into perfectly tacked Sharpness. And the eye out of focus would have like a beautiful bokeh effect with the catch light just expanding like crazy, which is something that you you normally cannot associate with the distance between two eyes when you're photographing at a reasonable, you know, uh, headspace, right? And 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 I mean, we're talking razor thin depth of field, but this was interesting to me because I, I didn't take the time to do the math, but not hard. An F1.4 lens, right? So take a Canon 50 millimeter F1.4. 0.7 is four times the amount of light. Yep. So now you're really talking about, without going nuts on ISO, because a lot of cinema cameras don't do what our DSLRs do ISO-wise, you're talking about the ability to shoot a movie in candlelight and... That, to me, is very, very interesting. They give the example of Barry Lyndon in 1975 with Stanley Kubrick. And that was with a, a NASA lens, I believe. Um, that, that was the Zeiss planer, that, that was des- lens. Designed to photograph uh, the, uh, not the far side of the moon, uh, or uh, sorry, not the dark side of the moon, the far side of the moon. Or right. uh, whenever the moon was dark, um, you would have very little light and you would need as much as possible in order to illuminate that. <laughs> And uh, I think there were 10 made. NASA, uh, I guess, was the only buyer from what I hear. Um, and uh, Zeiss kept one of them. But- well, and Kubrick had to modify, well, well, him and his you know, DP, had to modify the camera to work with the lens. They had to remove the mirror because, and they talk about oh, all this. This was the craziest, and I didn't realize this. That, the flange uh, distance stuff. Because you have to have the film plane, or the sensor plane in modern times, but the film plane so much closer to the optic in order to achieve infinity focus at these crazy apertures just by the design, and they show it in this video. Uh, but what that meant Not is- Not even by the design, it's by physics. Yeah, it, well, sure. Yeah. Um, but the, the point that I want to make is, not only do you have the most ridiculously shallow depth of field, yeah, it's weird. you can't see what you're shooting because you don't have right. an optical splitter in the way. Right? So they, they, but Kubrick's DP created some weird little monitor that split off the camera a different on, way. On like a, a 90 degree angle. And so yeah. you were able to, yeah. And then not only that, but he, they put, it was so low light. He wanted to shoot by nothing but candlelight. So he wanted to use this lens. They had to put reflectors on the ceiling and they used candles that had three wicks just to make it even brighter. It was just, it was that alone. And they, they, they discussed the movie Amadeus and there was some stuff in there about firemen that was actually really, really cool. But yeah, I just can't say it enough. You gotta go, you gotta go see this because they, they, I'm not te- as techie as Don. They discuss the theoretical limits of aperture. So there are 0.7 lenses. They use one in here. 
there theoretically could be a 0.5 lens, and there actually has been made a 0.33 lens that they talk about in here, but they explain that it was really a marketing ploy and the thing didn't really work. Yeah, I mean, sure, you could technically have it, but it won't make an actual useful image um, with an aperture that wide. The resulting photograph, um, which it would be a photograph, but it would not be an image that we would recognize uh, as the world that we see. Um, so I watched this, Steve, and... Uh, I immediately went to eBay and I found <laughs> you didn't. I found a Zeiss R Biotar 100 millimeter F 0.73 lens for $300 US. And, and you ordered it. I bought it. Uh, and so thank you to everybody that has pre ordered copies of my book over the last few days. You just afforded that, um, which will. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with that because I'm not going to take my camera apart to move the sensor forward unless I have an old broken or soon to be broken camera that I'm willing to sacrifice to it. But I figured there's got to be something that I can do, even if it's not on uh, an infinity focus scale, maybe on a macro focus scale or something. And for $300 to obtain one of those lenses, um, I, I think that that if I get one useful image over a year or two of tinkering periodically, I'll number one, I'll enjoy the tinkering and it'll keep me sane. Uh, and number two, if I get any useful image out of that, that just kind of ups my geek cred by a notch. Well, so, and we should mention that lens you mentioned, the Biotar 100 millimeter 7.3 or, or, or 0.73 uh, is an x-ray lens. And there was a something again, cause I'm, I'm like computer geeky. This goes way above what I'm normally into. And it was fascinating facts in this video. This is These are part of the reasons I couldn't stop watching the video. Media division, great job. The human eye is about 2.1, F2.1, when it's wide open, meaning you're dilated, right? An owl is about F1.3. Now, we all assume owls see in the dark. They're F1.3. This is... Point seven, right? Well, have you ever? Uh, I had an eye test last year, and uh, and I was like inside the room. They, they dilate your eyes with putting a, a chemical in there, and uh, and I was inside the room, and I said, "Yeah, no, I'll be fine to to drive home." My God, if if I had sunglasses, it would have been a much different experience. But in bright light, I I had to pull over on the side of the road yep. and wait. Uh, because I'm like, this is just dangerous trying to drive with my eyes in this condition. Uh, and, and that's wide open. So that's, uh, that's not the way our eyes normally function. We normally have more depth of field and so on and so forth. Um, but owls are only 1.3. I, I don't know why I assumed that was surprising that they, to me. Yeah. I, I just assumed that, uh, now that's, that's their lens, but that doesn't, uh, take into consideration, uh, the human eye is built on rods and cones, right? Uh, and so the rods detect luminance, the cones detect chrominance, Color. Yeah. Uh, moreover. B but let's say the uh, th this is basically the ISO, or ISO as I should probably pronounce it, of the the film or the sensor. See, to is, me, ISO works because it technically stands for International Standards Organization. Yeah, but it's it the is international. An no, no, it, but it's the International Organization of Standardization. It's IOS. Oh, I uh, guess that's so, true. Okay. Yeah, uh, but hey, it was, uh, people can complain to me. Uh, send hate mail to Don at we'll, we'll go ISO. Um, <laughs> so, uh, 
the, the point is that their eye, the, the, the biology of their sensor might be right. configured differently to have more densely packed rods in a certain area, or I, I'm sure owls see color. I, I don't know of any birds that see black and white, but um, there might be a different sway of the arrangement in order to make their sensor, uh, the, the actual retina, more sensitive to certain types of light that would make them better in low light scenarios, not just the amount of light coming in. So there's that. But interesting story, though. Yeah, a very interesting story. Watch this video uh, and uh, cringe a little bit as they disassemble a camera to force the sensor to be millimeters. The flange distance that they needed was four millimeters. That's the distance uh, from the, the focusing point to the uh, uh, to the uh, lens itself. Uh, for example, the flange distance on the Sony E-mount they mentioned in the video is, I think, 18 millimeters. They needed four. There is no camera mount on the market that could provide that in order to make this lens work, which obviously that that's why uh, Kubrick needed to redesign the cameras. And, and that's why any Hasselblad, which has never been seen by, by human eyes uh, at NASA, and I don't think the photos have ever been Nobody seen Nobody has either. seen the photos. We, we assume, we know NASA ha- had the lenses. We assume that NASA has photos, but nobody's seen them. Well, <clears throat> what if? Uh, and uh, NASA has published just about everything. It's public domain. They're proud of it. Why would, and I'm going to put on my conspiracy theory hat, Steve. Uh-oh. Why, now, why would they hide that? Why would they never have published that? My theory, it didn't work. Uh, the camera operator uh, goofed up uh, or for whatever reason, there wasn't as much light as they expected based on calculations or something happened that uh, the uh, the dark areas of the moon uh, came out as blurry images and they just had nothing to show. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's either that or they used it, the, they used the lens to film the JFK thing and that's still under wrap. <laughs> well, I, I mean, if we're yeah, going to go that, conspiracy theory, theory, let's dive in, right? Oh, uh, well, hey, yeah, there's enough conspiracy theorists with modern news today. I don't even want to go there. Uh, and that's what I, story number three is going to create, by the way. <clears throat> well, yes. Uh, but, but before we get there, um, I, I just wish uh, if, if somebody knew the truth of what NASA did with those images, I don't even want to see the photos. I could say, yeah, they turned out all right. Uh, or no, they were blurry because uh you know they just if theory was great but practicality failed i just wish somebody would tell us I, um, you would think they would be accessible through a freedom of information act request, yeah a um, request. i don't know maybe i should put one of those in or maybe i can't maybe you have to do that steve because you're an american but i don't know that it matters uh i think nationality has an impact on whether or not you can apply one of those but let the lawyers figure that out um anyhow story three reported by dp review and thank you for the segue by the way um let's enhance 2.0 introduces new ai powered algorithms for upscaling your photos now they're not the only people doing this. There's a lot of people investing time, money, and creating products uh, around artificial intelligence, deep learning, whatever word you want to use to identify what a subject is and improving the perceived detail through algorithms and a bank of other images that can be substituted based on what you think should be there and so on and so forth. Um, so check out this article because it, it is dramatic when they have a low resolution versus a uh, their 2.0 software and what it can create as an end result. But 
this to me is, I don't know, it's awkward. Uh, no, we can talk about the software uh, mechanisms, like the the way that they they're very they're holding it close to their chest. They're not actually giving you their database. You have to upload the photo uh, and their service has to crunch it and so on and so forth. Um, but there's one thing helpful in, I guess I'm of two minds here, in making your art better art, right? And sometimes that means a higher resolution result, even though you might not have a higher resolution camera. And if it has to fake the texture of a bird feather uh, from one bird to another, you don't necessarily care. But if you're um, a, uh, a bird watcher and you look at that bird and you say, no, that texture is from a robin's breast feather, even though it's a different color. It's not from this tree swallow uh, or whatever it happens to be. And at some point, you break reality. And I think software like this is pushing against that line and maybe crossing it a little bit. What do you think? I, okay, so when you first sent this story over, and I don't know why. Talk about conspiracy theory again. The first thing I thought of was Elizabeth Holmes. And Elizabeth Holmes was the one who did the blood testing company. Uh, they did a documentary out for right. Blood. Yeah, I remember this now. <clears throat> um, and basically what the concept was, was Elizabeth Holmes built this idea that, you know, we can test your blood for a bunch of different things. This The system didn't work. So you had to end up sending it in. And they were telling you they were doing it, but in reality, they had a basic lab just doing regular lab tests like anybody else could do. It was all, you know, smoke and mirrors. <clears throat> and I thought, okay, I'm uploading my picture. And really, they've got a whole bunch of people sitting at computers sharpening these pictures by hand or something. I, I, I honestly, I, I don't think they're doing that. I'm but... not saying it is. I'm not saying it is. But that's the first thing that hit. So AI tied to photography is being explored by literally every tech company on the planet. I guarantee you Google and Samsung and Apple all have amazing AI for photography in development right now. They have tests that just haven't made it to market. What this software is designed for by, by design at least is very specific. It's designed for upscaling a picture. So it is not designed to just take AI and make a blurry picture sharp. It's designed to go Two-time, four-time, eight-time, 16-time, custom amount of time, you know, bigger. Th th my problems with it are <clears throat> twofold. One, I have to upload my picture to them. They do the magic sauce on their server. I pick from a preset, auto, photo, illustration, photo two, and photo two faces. And then I get my result picture. I would have to comb through that terms of service so closely before I uploaded my pictures Oh yeah, you don't um, want to give away your rights, and and I I looked yeah. at this. I don't want it to end up in an ad. <clears throat> exactly, either. and it it doesn't seem like they take your rights from my cursory look. Um, but there was something in there, uh, not in their terms of use, but in their privacy policy that stood out for me. Uh, based on the content that you provide them, uh, can be used to market things to you. Which uh, means like if you provide them your email address, they can send you a newsletter. But that could also mean that uh, down the road, say they have version 3.0 of their software, they could send you a version of a photograph that you have previously uploaded with this new uh, algorithm to show you how much better it is. And to try and get you to re-up your subscription, because by the way, this is not purchasable. It's a subscription service. It is, right. I, I misspoke, by the way. The presets 
what I listed with auto and photo and illustration and that, <clears throat> those are algorithms that they use, including photos two faces, which I want to touch on because that was actually interesting. The, but they have presets in interesting areas. Photo prints is a different preset from real estate. That was an interesting one to have for me. Uh, and then e-commerce. But the photo two faces, that was interesting because they show that in these examples. So the first example they show in the article is uh, four different before and after shots, or actually three different shots and one really close up. And in the before and after, it looks pretty good. Basically, what they do is they do face reconstruction, prioritizing clarity if they see that it's a face. But when you scroll down, the next shot is the low resolution image. And then the upscaled image, again, this isn't a sharpening tool, it's an upscale tool. The upscaled image uh, of this girl in a red dress. I'm so glad you picked up on this, Steve. I'm so so glad you picked up on this. Uh, You're pixel peeping like the best of them. Continue. The face is way over sharpened to me, like unnaturally sharp. And the chest is so blotchy that if I put a picture like that up of a girl that I knew or a model, she'd slap me. Yeah, it's blotchy. It's blotchier than the original. You know, if, if you know that that's just a continuous skin tone, you can see like right around the neck area. It's is bad. Where, uh, it's it's perfect. Well, I and, don't and that's perfect. the it, easiest area to upscale. It's almost solid tones. <clears throat> exactly. And then right below that, after they've put all of their effort into uh, into the face, uh, shows that their algorithm is not ready for prime time when those continuous tones reach. Uh, she's wearing a shoulderless red dress. So you can see her shoulders and then... Right above the bust line, you've got the dress. Uh, yeah, but look at the edge of the dress. They also <laughs> ruin that. Yeah, it's uh, so uh, this is not ready yet. But the thing is, it shows you what they're trying to do. And so for certain things, if you've got uh, an ad campaign that is promoting no editing, but they're running it through one of these, let's call it a filter. Um, if you have photojournalism, if you have a news agency that wants to run an image, um, but it was from somebody's cell phone and the main subject in the frame only took up like a third or a fifth of the frame and it's just there's not enough data there, but they still want to run a uh, You could a not front, ethically use cover. this in photojournalism. No, you could not. You could not. And so because it is bending reality. Um, and I, I, I guess I try in a lot of my work. I, I bend reality. I mean, it's, it's not the world that I see, but I want it to be close to what the camera can capture. And, uh, and I, I do modifications. I'll, you know, sometimes use a liquify tool here to bend a stem to be a little bit more curved or something that, you know, cause it might've broken a tiny bit and you've got this weird angle that I just want to smooth out. Um, but, uh, I feel like if I'm in control of that, it's my art. If I'm handing it off to somebody else to reconstruct it, I feel like I'm an archaeologist and I'm finding something that I'm trying to rebuild uh, as I, that's not a very good uh, comparison, but you get what I'm saying, right? I completely get what you're saying. Um, here's the thing, though. I, I like everything. I sit back and think, OK, I'm, I'm picking this thing apart at pixel detail. Where would it be useful? Well, if you were doing a modeling shot, you wanted to you wanted to recycle an ad from the seventies or from the nineties when that somebody shot on a you know or early two thousands on a two megapixel digital camera, and you wanted to upscale that model, and the dress and stuff you could do pretty well, but the face detail was dying. You could effectively do this 
And where the chest is bad, you simply composite it back to the original. I could totally see doing that. But at $9 a month to start? Well, and that's where it gets tricky for me because you would have to have a financial reason for this tool, right? It's got to be a, a line item on an invoice to somebody, um, you know, if, if you're to justify that. But I, I don't see why that would be possible, uh, especially real estate photography. I mean, really, most people view those photos on their phones or on their tablets. It's not going to be something that you need to print on a billboard. And if you did, you don't need to nose up to that billboard to see the level of detail. It's viewed at a distance. So, Well, and, and real estate photographers are, you know, doing higher end stuff. Most average consumer homes, the real estate agent walks in with a phone or what they did when I sold my house, you know, or was going to sell my house at one point, not, not, not that long ago. Uh, could you take some pictures and send them to me? So this is not something that's going to happen for everybody. And when you're talking a hundred dollars, a hundred images a month for nine dollars, three hundred images a month for twenty four dollars, and five hundred for thirty four dollars, and that's individual. When you get into business, it's a thousand images for seventy two dollars a month, and goes up from there. The highest one they have a price on is two hundred ninety a month for five thousand images. I just don't see it. I, I don't see anybody, uh, anyone, any business registering for that kind of thing. Now, if this could be like a uh, a two dollar iPhone app, um, then yeah, I think there might be a business model there, uh, especially if it's kind of like a an artificial way to zoom in on distant things. Uh, and you, even if you don't necessarily care if what it says is accurate, it'll give you a better idea as to what that is. I think that's a viable model uh, for yeah. this kind of technology, but. Uh, the way it's presented, you know, it sounds like a company, uh, and here's my conspiracy theory on this one, uh, sounds like a company that needs to get a viable product out so that they can get bought by another company and roll this technology into some other service. Yeah. Somebody, yeah. you know, the comments are interesting. Comments are always, people are <laughs> Oh, mean, the DP man. review comments are always a joy. People which, are which cold. I mean, there's people you. saying that the article is just a blatant promo for the product. Um, there's other people saying clearly this is going to cause everybody to go to Topaz. <laughs> no. Well, they, and Topaz somebody does have somebody their... references though on one used to be genuine genuine fractals back in the day, and now it's perfect resize, which is a great product. Yeah, and uh, on one it's now called on one resize. I believe they dropped the word perfect, but um, that is similar to I, I kind of prefer it slightly more than the uh, Preserve Details 2.0 in Photoshop, which has gotten a lot better than the than the original version. Um, they do not use a database of of images to resample your photograph with. Um, they use just algorithms to detect curves and contrast lines and enhance them all mathematically without uh, using other images as source material to improve the quality of the work. And I think that that, um, that kind of mathematical algorithm uh, is ethically sound for things like photojournalism because it's not referencing other material to, to make those decisions. Everything's treated the same, and I've never seen it do anything wonky. No, and I mean, again, it's it's a solid, good product that you own, that you download. You don't have to upload your images. I, I'm not arguing that their AI doesn't have potential. I'm arguing that their business model is wrong. Right. Well, uh, and I agree. <laughs> but let's talk about changing business models. And we were talking about Adobe just briefly, uh, you know, with Photoshop's uh, 
uh, uh, enhancing details, features, and, and whatever else. Um, Adobe has been known for a number of conferences. Their biggest one every year um, is Adobe Max. Right and, here in L.A. Uh, and uh, it's one of those things where I've always wanted to go, but L.A. is far from where I am, and it was costly. Um obviously now you can't be doing online or you can't, can't be doing in-person conferences. You have to do them online now or just scrap it all together and wait for next year uh, and hope for the best. So from DP review also uh, Adobe's max 2020 creativity conference will be a free online only event this year. So the, the real key here is not only that this is going online, but they're making it free. This was not a cheap conference. I don't have prices in front of me, but last year when it was in LA, uh, Alan Hess, who is a friend of mine from San Diego, was going. I was going to try and meet him there. And I ended up going to meet Aaron Nace of Flern and Adam L. Macias, the two of them for lunch. And I didn't go to the conference, but Dave Clayton flew in from you know the UK. <clears throat> this was a big conference. This year, it's October 19 to 21. Spans my birthday. That's cool. October 19 to 21. Making this free is not a minor thing. It's a smart thing, though. Right? This, this is very, very smart of them because the bottom line is, yeah, charging made sense because they had to get the room together. They had to rent the facility. Still going to have some overhead. Streaming this type of thing isn't going to be cheap. But <clears throat> their bottom line is, promoting Adobe, getting Adobe technology out there, getting Adobe education out there. Making this free is the smartest pivot I've seen in this type of business in a long time. You do still have to register, but no charge to do it. And, you know, I'm thinking uh, if I enjoy the experience, even if I'm 1% of the attendees that think, well, if I liked it that much virtually, Maybe it's worthwhile to pay for it and go there in person the next year. It's a teaser. And I, I, it's a teaser. And, and I think that it's it's a valuable tool for that. And it it will be that tool for me. I mean, I am going to register for this. And I'm going to. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, you'd, you'd be silly not to. Uh, just register, even if you're not going to be a part of it. And I don't really like Adobe software all that much. I mean, I, I use it. It's a necessity. Um I put this podcast together in Adobe Audition. You know, I uh, I have some substitutes for Photoshop, but not for everything. Uh, and Lightroom is becoming less and less of my digital asset manager. I'm using uh, on one uh, Photo Raw for that most of the time now. But sometimes they're they're still the juggernaut, and you can't deny that uh, the knowledge that you will gain from attending a conference like this virtually will be valuable to you. Just the same as if you were using uh, uh, Capture One from Phase One and they did a conference like this. Well, you would find nuggets of knowledge of real value and importance within that. And to carry that forward into uh, into your workflow would just be, there's no reason why not to be a part of that. Um, so They are going to grow the audience for this by leaps and bounds because people who would have, like you say, never traveled to L.A., with the cost of the conference, the cost of the travel, the cost of a hotel, the cost of travel from the hotel to the venue, <clears throat> those people can all go now. But I never thought about what you said, and that is, if this year it's virtual, but for whatever reason, next year it's in person, now you suddenly take this huge audience that has seen it, and you push the social end of it as a draw. 
Yeah. It's yeah, a win-win for everybody. I, I think that's the only thing that would save this. By the way, registration will be opening later this summer. It's not open right now. So stay tuned uh, uh, to Adobe, I guess, that will announce that at some point. But um, this, this raises a final question on the story, Steve, because I, I participated recently in the Out of Chicago Live conference. Yep, which did uh, really well. Incredibly well. They had, I think, 600 people register for that. And uh, all of the instructors were uh, paid nicely, but it wasn't that expensive for people to attend. And it was a nice virtual thing. It, you still had to pay to be a part of it. Um, and a lot of the talks, like I did three different talks, and it was kind of niche content. And um, But hey, I, uh, I enjoyed that experience. Um, uh, there's talks of a lot of other conferences either being canceled outright or going virtually. Uh, when we reach a uh, an immunity level from this current pandemic, when we either have a vaccine or herd immunity or something that just makes this problem go away that's keeping us apart, will these conferences be able to survive being online only, in person only? Or what I think uh, is that people will crave the physical interaction. I mean, I'm missing seeing friends and family right now uh, and colleagues, but I think, and, and this will be to our benefit, that there might be a lower price tier in the future as a digital uh, attendee and then still have the physical conference as well. Because you're not going to get a massive amount of people from Germany flying to Los Angeles. You'll get some, I'm sure. But, uh, but the photographic industry is worldwide. Uh, and so let people enjoy it from the... Uh, uh, from their own living rooms, from their offices. You know, you don't have to wear pants. Well, Apple's WWDC is going to be entirely online this year. That I fully believe if they can do it in person next year, they will, and it will still be full. People do want social, but there's no question the pandemic is, is changing everything drastically. It's changing how we consume media. It's changing how movie distribution will happen. It's changing how we interact with other humans. It's changing how we get education. I'm not saying, for example, date nights will be gone. People will still go to dinner. People will still go to a cinema. <clears throat> but there's no question to an extent that has already not only changed, but comfortably for many people changed. For things like this, I think it's going to depend on the conference, right? So for example, take out of Chicago. Out of Chicago isn't sitting in a conference room. The normal out of Chicago, I have not been to it, but I, I've spoken with Chris, the, the founder, uh, about it before. Chris Smith, great guy. Yeah, uh, when he was on and my show. <clears throat> and there's a lot of, my understanding at least, you've actually taught there, but my understanding is there's a lot of hands-on, move out of the conference room. It's, it's, it's not the, the, the everybody sit in a big room, somebody on a stage with a big screen. There's a lot more out in the real world. Go into Chicago, take shots. You, you're not going to replace that online. No. So it's going to depend. Well, but and everything and will talks, be different. Uh, right now, uh, I mean, I guess a debate um, whether or not uh, they're uh, out of Chicago Botanic Gardens should be continuing this year. It's scheduled for July, um, and I'm scheduled to be a part of it. Or ClickCon. <clears throat> Uh, and Which is in Chicago. Uh, and there's so many of them. And I honestly think, uh, my, my personal opinion, that everything should be pushed back to 2021, or at least so far, like the earliest projections for a vaccine, I think, are November. Um, 
use that as as your uh, as your yardstick here. And I'm in the I, again, I'm in the process of canceling some of my own workshops because, or just deferring them to next year. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll see what the new normal becomes then. But I, you know, Steve, I, I know you go out to uh, uh, to your uh, fabulous Del Taco and you enjoy their fine cuisine. Um, I'm not able to confirm or deny. <laughs> uh, and we have to make sure that these people stay in business. But dine-in experiences right now, people have come up with all sorts of, uh, you know, no, I, I saw one company, uh, uh, one restaurant, I believe somewhere in Asia, I was just passing through my newsfeed, that built small greenhouses uh, and put tables inside them. So everybody had their own separate enclosure. You can't do that with a photo conference. You can do that with eating out. Um, and you can have some sense of normalcy, uh, because of it. But I think we're in this for the long haul. Uh, and that Adobe max is going online for this. I believe it's a smart decision and I wish everybody would do the same, at least for now, then a hybridized experience, because, you know, I sometimes tune in to uh, press conferences and announcements from big companies like Intel or Microsoft, uh, AMD, et cetera, uh, to see what they have to say and the enthusiasm behind what they're saying. And I do that virtually. That's great. But um, those major announcements are about the only thing that is broadcast and streamed live. Right. Wouldn't it be great if the entire presentations of everybody using that equipment or whatever else uh, becomes available just from home? well, and, and speaking of, of the streaming part of it, that's the part I'm interested in from the tech point of view, because this is Alex Lindsay of, of Onino Media's world. Um, they are going, you know, it's just not keynotes that they're streaming. All the platform classes, all the keynotes, everything's being streamed to who, I don't know if there's going to be 10,000 people getting the stream or a million people getting the stream. Or 10. This is a I, logistical nightmare. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. I want to I be in the room that's running that stream. And uh, when things are getting good and something big is announced and the number of people quadruple in three minutes to view the stream because the announcement has just broke on Twitter, then yep. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. um, on a side note, before we get to our final fanciful story... Um, Microsoft just announced their Surface Book 3 recently. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it. You mentioned I have not. You know, uh, Apple's latest technology. And uh, they, they did an interesting thing. And I'm still trying to find uh, you know, somebody that can provide me a clear answer. They, uh, they created a 13.5 and a 15-inch uh, model of the Surface Book 3 uh, using some of the, the latest, very low-power Intel CPUs, up to 32 gigabytes of RAM, and built-in NVIDIA GPUs. Uh, GPU is, it's a weird device. It's in the, uh, in the keyboard portion, which is separated from um, the, uh, the, the screen with a latch. The CPU, the memory, and a battery is all in the screen. It's a tablet. You plug it into the keyboard, it has an extra battery and a GPU. Uh, so it's a really bizarre device, but I'm fascinated by this. Well, and, and the 10th gen chips, that's one of the big differences in, is the, the GPU, the onboard GPU. Well, but they, they, uh, they've added in, uh, above the, the base level models, uh, NVIDIA GeForce, the, uh, 1650 yeah, and the, pic- the 1660. Pixel sense uh, display and the, but something weird that they've done with this is they, they do offer an option with the NVIDIA, uh, Quadro GTX 3000, I believe. 
um, which has uh, ray tracing units and all sorts of extra bells and whistles that would be very useful for an independent creative that wanted to go on the move. And we're not moving around much anymore, but my computer is uh, nearing about seven years old. And there's only so much that I can upgrade. If it dies, if a critical component in this thing dies and I have to replace the motherboard, I'm down and out for weeks until I can find that same model from seven years ago. Um, so I've been looking at the Quattro version and uh, yeah, it's pricey. And uh, it, like my computer was pricey. I would expect a replacement to last a long time. Um, but they're not selling it to the public. They're selling it only to uh, businesses and when you go to order it, it's never an option. And I called them on it, uh, a physical phone call. And uh, the guy on the phone says, well, I don't know anything about that. It's just, it seems so weird to have the highest end of your product uh, be uh, just unavailable to consumers. It kind of gives it a halo. It's like, maybe it makes me want it even more. Uh, Apple's never done anything like that. What the heck is no, Microsoft it's, it's- doing? It's one of my things. M- Microsoft surprises me in the weird ways. Like I deal with Microsoft all the time for my job and uh, not corporate wise, but their product line uh, uh, as my job. And some of the things that that uh, they do, like I've called their, their enterprise software licensing line uh, with questions and had the person not know as much as I knew, which is always weird because you literally just talk about licensing all day long. But, you know, even the website, by the way, like while you were talking, I pulled up the Surface Book 3 website or web page and just with a standard ad blocker, the entire page broke. I mean, (laughs) like bad dialogue boxes that have close buttons and you can't click the close button even and they're transparent and just it was completely broken. Um, But, you know, so that's Microsoft, but still. It's an interesting product. People who like the Surface will probably love this because of the technology that's in it, GPU-wise and and CPU-wise. You can get up to 32 gig of RAM on this thing now. To me, 13 and a half inch would probably be the sweet spot in this. I don't see if I'm going to get a 15 inch that I'd want this particular device, but... uh, the 13.5 yeah, in, in, was was really interesting because I love that smaller form factor. It can fit easily in my camera bag, easy to travel yep. with. They don't offer the Quadro on that uh, that version, although I think they should um, because they offer the same amount of RAM. They offer the same CPU. They uh, it, It's the same specs. They just don't uh, include that. But uh, anyhow, uh, that Surface Book 3 is available uh, and uh, an unattainable version of it is designed for content creators. So good luck getting your hands on it. They're even saying that you can run SolidWorks on these, which which is shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see if they're embellishing that or not when yeah. it gets in some uh, real world hands. But um, all right. So, Steve, our final story. Uh, this is why we can't have nice things. Why, why is that? This is going to be a very short story. This <laughs> yeah. is basically, I mean, this is, this is exactly what you're going to think it is. Picture, if you will, a television cameraman walking on a public sidewalk, documenting empty businesses, empty stores due to COVID-19. Parking lots with no cars and closed doors. No cars, no nothing. Public sidewalk. Let me stress that again. And a news person with a news high-end television camera. And 
Then there's 45-year-old Brett Lehrman's. Brett Wearing happened to a be TWD, the Walking Dead t-shirt, by the way. I don't know why I feel the yes. need to point that out. I like that show, but we are not in an apocalypse right now. And bringing a bad name to the show, this guy is. <laughs> yeah. He was not walking by the cameraman. He was driving by, and he felt that the cameraman may have accidentally filmed him. So what does Brett do? Brett pulls over gets out of the car, walks up to the cameraman, and at this point is being filmed as he assaults the cameraman. Now, assaults at this point, he took the cameraman's hat. But then he took the cameraman's camera, on camera, being filmed by somebody else, took the cameraman's camera and slammed it down into the parking lot. So, which is assault. And here's the key. He's on film. They were able to find him. They were able to ID him. And in Illinois, where which is where this happened. Rock Island, Illinois, yeah. Uh, I love that Petapixel did this, by the way. Petapixel looked up the infractions he was charged with. Battery in Illinois is a Class A misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of one year in county jail and or a fine up to 2500 because he was charged with battery. But he was also charged with criminal damage to property over $10,000. Now think about it. Expensive camera. Yeah. yeah, Think about a television camera. $10,000 is nothing, right? Yeah. The lens is that. Class three felony up to two to five or between two to five years in state prison and fines up to 25,000. Brett, dude, get it together. I mean, this guy is, uh, he's, he's having, he made the photographer have a bad day, sure, but he's going to have a worse one and many of them to come. Um, but, uh, I just, I feel like this, I, I don't even know why I added this to the rundown because I wanted something like light at the end of it. It's been technical, but this is also kind of frustrating because yes, the equipment is replaceable. I'm sure it has insurance and it's all documented. The camera is going to be replaced and the photographer wasn't hurt. Um, at least to, to our knowledge, based on the information provided. Uh, but man, what there, there's a 45 year old guy that should know better. And this idea that you see somebody, first of all, anywhere he goes, people are filming on their phones does he go out and break out every, like, uh, take a gun and shoot out every security camera on street corners to measure it the traffic? It just makes no sense. I mean, <laughs> it makes no sense. But hey, these are the people in our neighborhoods. Yes, this is in Rock Island, Illinois, but they are in your neighborhood too. Um, and uh, some people, they just don't need much to cross that line from sanity to insanity. And we're all being pushed a little closer to that line. I'm not advocating for this man, not in any possible way, but I'm saying, if you are feeling frustrated, just punch a pillow, man. It's just <laughs> well, and and I will go so far to say because you know, photography it goes back to the it could be a t-shirt, photography is not a crime. I really honestly hope that this guy gets actual prison time. Oh yeah, I I think that uh, I mean, I don't want to say make an example of him, but seriously, this is an outlandish no, an outlying example it's out of hand. here. Uh, yeah. And so, hey, they, we know what the law is going to say. Uh, by the looks of him, and this is just my own personal opinion, uh, I don't think he can afford a good lawyer. No, he can't <laughs> afford the $25,000 fine, I'm guessing, too. But you never know. The guy <laughs> could know. For all we know, he was on a, you know, very expensive bike. Uh he could have a ton of money. We don't know. 
But uh, mil- millionaires dress in jeans and t-shirts all the time. Um, anyhow, let's move on from that, Steve. Tell me what you're uh, up and busy with in your neck of the woods, your podcast, your website. Works good for you, I hope? Everything is working good. You know, I'm doing the thing I, I mentioned earlier with Adam L. Macias, the Raw Editing Challenge, raweditingchallenge.com. Check it out. We've got a shot out now of a singer by the name of Youngblood. Um, and you can edit it, submit it. They tell you how on the website. And then we talk about it live on Adam's Twitch show on Sundays. And uh, Behind the Shot, it's at behindtheshot.tv. I invite you to go check it out. If you like it, please subscribe. And Don and I doing, <clears throat> right before we recorded this, we just did a live YouTube critique show. It was number seven. And I am loving doing that because we're getting a mix of images that could use a lot of help and images that are amazing, but every image can be made better. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I enjoy it as just a, a I mean, it's monthly now. I, I, I could do it almost daily. I mean, I'm not putting that burden on you, Steve, but uh, the, the idea of just sitting down and uh, just analyzing people's work and having the conversation with you, I think is a lot of fun. And it's interesting what we see similar and what we see completely differently or, or what you find in an image that I didn't see you know, that type of thing. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's at the YouTube channel, Behind yep. the Shot. Uh, BehindTheShot.tv is where you can find Steve and all of his musings and the people that he muses with. Um, and uh, with that said, let's get into our picks of the week, um, which you've heard my voice maybe over a hundred times if you've been listening. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Don Komarechka. <laughs> uh, not that dramatically, but uh I have been using the entire time and the entirety of my interviews and podcasts a microphone, uh, obviously. But this particular one uh, I have an affinity for that was recommended to me way back in the day uh, when uh, Leo Laporte started up the This Week in Tech Studios. And uh, he was using a Heil PR40. And uh, it is a beautiful microphone. It's fairly directional. And I can snap my fingers in front. You can hear me. If I snap my fingers in behind, you can't really hear me at all. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I've got it on a stand with a pop screen. And it's got an, an XLR to USB adapter and things. Um, but everybody is looking for a good microphone that makes them sound good now that we're all working from home. And uh, I even did some interviews with, uh, uh, this was CBC radio one, uh, a few years ago. And, uh, I, I kind of called in via Skype or whatever system that they had at that time. And, uh, they remarked almost immediately. It's like, wow, wow. You would, what you're not on your phone. Are you? No, I've, I've got a, I've got a microphone here. Um, and wow, this is so refreshing. Uh, we actually have somebody that has studio recording equipment and thankfully, uh, the Heil PR 40, which you're also using too, Steve. I am uh, using and have been using since I've been podcasting and, and yeah, I'll touch on that when I get to my picture. Uh, actually. It, it is not expensive. Uh, I mean, uh, Heil sound, uh, based in the U S I believe the PR 40, uh, on Amazon in, uh, in Canada. Oh, well, that's a ridiculous price. That's not even useful. Uh, let's let's go to uh, B&H Photo, which is where I would buy something like this. $329 US. And so you can buy more expensive microphones, but this is great for audio. Uh, it doesn't require phantom power, and, uh, and it is just... It, it's a joy to use. Um, I don't have any 
issues with it uh, failing, like the audio falling out. If that does happen, it's due to other levels of technology, but not with the microphone and the system here. And just to piggyback on that, not saying that this is what you have to use. It's just what I use. It is a Shure X2U uh, USB to XLR adapter, which has worked for the most part. Uh, Whenever I do a big recording, I typically like to reboot my computer or unplug and replug it just in case. I've never had any issues. Some other people have. uh, And that's what I use to record these shows. So So let me piggyback on you. I use a Heil PR40. I have forever that I've been doing this podcast. Some of the best pricing I found is actually at Broadcast Supply Warehouse, which is uh, bswusa.com. Excuse me. And they have... um, they have kits, podcasting kits, so you can get the pop screen, you can get the boom mount, you know, whatever. I love the Heil PR40. If you don't know Bob Heil, Bob Heil is the one who invented the talk box. So when Peter Frampton came out with Frampton Comes Alive and was doing the, you know, talking into the tube, that's because Bob Heil had sent him and Joe Walsh, for that matter, uh, for Rocky Mountain Way, had sent him the talk box. That's the Bob Heil of, of Heil Sound. And a friend of mine does a lot of stuff with Heil, knows Bob. I personally don't, but I love his products. This microphone for the price range is actually a really nice mic. And what I like about it is, because <clears throat> a lot of people that that choose this level of a mic, it's not cheap. I mean, you can get a Rode Pod mic for 100 bucks. Ooh, I can get a gold one for $3.99, Steve. <laughs> Comes in gold or black, actually. But a lot of people looking at this mic kind of debate between the Heil PR40 and a Shure SM7B. Now, I use Shure SM7Bs at the radio station. We've probably got 30 of them around the building. And I love the Shure SM7B in a broadcast environment. The problem with a Shure SM7B is for most people, it requires too much drive. And so you end up having to buy a $150 cloud lifter to get enough gain from the microphone because the USB interface that they're using can't drive it, doesn't have enough gain. So you don't have that problem with the PR40, much less requirement. I'm actually running mine. I used the Shure XL2U up until about two months ago. And then I bought a PreSonus Studio 26C that I'm loving. But I I really- That's not your pick though, Steve. Not my pick. So my pick- and by the way, before you uh, you give your pick, you've cleared your voice twice in your preamble to give your pick, and you've just done it a third time, and I didn't hear it. Why was that? There we go. So I'm losing my voice because I've been talking a lot lately since I'm home. I'm doing tons of podcasting. And when I'm on the air, I have an on-off switch for my microphone that's right under my hand, and I can hit it easily if I need to cough or clear my throat. One of the things I prefer in podcasting is that people mute themselves somehow. And usually if you're in Zoom, there's a mute button you can do with your mouse. But I use a mute switch. And for years, I used one that's much less expensive. It's a Rolls MS-111. It's like 44 bucks. Oh, we don't care about that one. Tell us a good one. I have since upgraded to a Whirlwind, which is W-H-I-R-L, wind, all one word, mic mute PMD and PMD matters. The D means it's a desktop version. They have some you can have under your foot and PM is push to mute. You can have push to mute. You can have push to talk. You can have a bunch of different versions. And I, this thing is 88, 81 bucks on B and H. It is so heavy 
It doesn't move when you go to push the mute button. Unlike the rolls, I don't hear the button as you push it. The rolls makes a little bit of a clicking noise sometimes. This this button is really smooth. I know because I have the same one because you, Steve, recommended that I buy it. And it is literally the greatest thing because if you got to sneeze, you got to cough, suddenly there's a blower. Like this happens a lot. I'll be podcasting and they're mowing the yard next door. Okay, well, when I'm not talking, I just mute. And it sounds, by the way, it sounds like this when I mute. One, two, three, seven, eight, nine. That's it. It's gone and it's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's completely silent. It, it is a mechanical interruption. It's not any software interference or anything like that. So um, it ends up working really well. And uh, like I've got, I, I like having a tactile keyboard. Um, I have a really fancy clicky keyboard here in front of me. Maybe we'll make that a pick in a future week. Um, but it makes noise. It's a joy to type on, but I don't want to type on it when I'm recording a podcast. So having a physical uh, mic mute button, I can press that and type with one hand to, I mean, send a quick note to somebody or, uh, you know, open up a, a web link or something to that effect. It's not just uh, for, for coughing for my voice. I hate, it's a pet peeve of mine when I hear somebody typing on mic. And uh, I know that if I had a clicky keyboard, you'd hear it. And so now that I have this, I'm very happy with it. And by the way, speaking of which, that ties into your pick because my mic in front of my face, my keyboard is on the other side of the mic. And as Don did with the, you hear it on, then you get to the side, then you get behind it. My keyboard's behind it. That mic rejection, that off-axis rejection of a good dynamic mic matters. Right. And uh, and so just equip yourself with the right stuff. Uh, but there's so much out there. And if you're not familiar with how to do a good audio setup, you don't even know where to look. You're just, you're stuck and thinking, well, there's just like 500 options is the better price, the better one, and so on and so forth. So now you have some recommendations from Steve and I on how we record these podcasts. The, uh, the Heil uh, PR40 which I I don't know if there's a better version of a microphone for this kind of recording from Heil. Uh, It seems like everything that I ever wanted the microphone to be. Um, And relatively portable. It comes in a little carrying case. I even brought it um, once early on. This was when I was uh, still involved with the now defunct Arcanum. And I brought it to Bulgaria with me on one of my trips and just plugged it in because it's uh, with the Shure device that's got a USB port. And I did some uh, some hangouts with my cohort in the Arcanum using this microphone uh, traveling. And, and to be able to just kind of pick this up and take it with you across the world, it could be useful to some people. It doesn't necessarily have to sit on your desk. It's small enough. If you see these big sweep out arms and these gigantic contraptions where the microphone like yours is a little bit more advanced than mine, Steve, where uh, you have elastics that are holding it inside of this cage. So yeah, I have, I have a shock those- mount and it's on a yeah, boom arm. Exactly. I have just a tabletop uh, little dealie here that uh, unscrews and fits in a suitcase if I need to take it anywhere. And Uh, by the way, you can take that Shure. The Shure XL2U has slots in it that work great for zip ties. You can zip tie it to the vertical pole on that mount, and it's always with you. Exactly. So those are our picks, uh, and uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. PhotoGeekWeekly.com is where you can find the show notes for this episode uh, and my website at doncom.ca. Steve can be found at BehindTheShot.tv and all of the links to our social media presences are there. Thank you very much. 
and uh, Steve, well, thank you for being on the show again. It was nice to go kind of toe to toe on some of these stories because we each had some insights to bring to the table, and uh, you're always good for that. So I appreciate it's a, you. Being it's the here. joy of my week when I get to do this with you. Oh, lovely! Well, it's my joy too. This is uh, this is social interaction for me, uh, and I don't get a whole lot of that besides my wife and daughter. And don't get me wrong, I love that. But sometimes talking to an adult photo geek. Uh, keeps me comfortable and sane and maybe for everybody listening it's been a one-way uh, one-way conversation and you feel like you've been at the table with us chatting over a coffee a diet coke or a beer and so with that being said thank you for being a part of the conversation and now it's time to stay in and shoot 